Okay, if I can call Roshan up. So the last presentation is really about medical scheme investments. Roshan from Alexander Forbes. Thanks, Alex. Um, yeah, so I'm sure all of you are very tired because I'm very tired. I, I was on the six o'clock flight this morning, but thanks for staying because uh, it's always a challenge for the last session of the day. Uh, up until now, all day today, we've looked at the liability side of medical schemes. And I think one area that often gets neglected by us healthcare actually is the investment side or, or the asset side. So um, basically on today's agenda, I'm just going to, it looks like a long agenda, but uh, actually it's not. I've got a reason to ensure I finish on time because I've got a flight to catch at seven o'clock. Um, basically look at the reasons why medical schemes invest, the regulations, um, looking at the actual asset allocation of the top 20, top 10 open medical schemes and top 10 restricted medical schemes for the 2013 year, for which the, the, that's basically the latest information that's available. Uh, looking at medical scheme liabilities and how that should inform the asset strategy. Um, and then also unpacking some of the reasons why medical schemes currently do adopt such a conservative approach. So uh, We look at some case studies where we've done some asset liability modeling and um, basically in the end there's one or two questions for us as healthcare actuaries. So just right at the beginning, why do medical schemes invest? and this is taken from the Council for Medical Schemes annual report for 2013 and 2014. And what it states is that the primary obligation of a medical scheme is to ensure that it has sufficient assets to pay benefits to the beneficiaries when those benefits fall due. The management of its assets must therefore be structured to cope with the demand, nature, and timing of the expected liabilities. Now, I guess that's any investment statement. What we read into this is that investment strategy should reflect the liabilities of the scheme. And also what we read from this is that the risk of medical schemes is not meeting those liabilities as they fall due. That's Investments 101, if you ask me. Um, what this also tells us is that um, uh, the reason uh, medical... Uh, so, so if we look at the requirements in terms of the Medical Schemes Act, all medical scheme options are required to show an operational break-even position. Now, what that tells me is that your day-to-day -day oper uh, operational cash flows need to be funded from your contribution. So it leaves your reserves for other stuff. And what those other stuff are is, the, is those unexpected, catastrophic, uh, large events that medical schemes cannot plan for. And that tells me that your reserves are actually there for your long-term liabilities and not your day-to-day -day operations or your short-term liabilities. Just very quickly, and most of you will be familiar with these regulations. Regulation 29, it's a statutory requirement for minimum solvency. Each scheme has to hold 25% in contributions. Regulation 30 basically uh, indicates what the investment uh, guidelines are for medical schemes. So medical schemes can invest up to 40% in equities, 10% in properties, but there's no limits in terms of deployment investments or the cash investments, although there is limits placed on the amount of investments held in individual institutions. So this graph basically shows you the top nine open medical schemes and the top 10 restricted medical schemes and how they invest. And each color represents a different asset class. So we've got cash and money market, bonds, equities, property, uh, collective investment vehicles, and other types of investments. Um, and looking at this graph, one would think that there's a fair amount of diversification between different asset classes. But if we look at the next slide, 
this basically shows you the, the mix of assets between risky and non-risky assets. Now, we've classified uh, cash and bonds as being non-risky, although we do know that um, that's not always entirely true. We had a recent African bank failure. Um, that means that bonds, some, some bonds are not, well, not all bonds are safe investments. But by and large, if we, if we consider bond uh, investments to be fairly safe, then this graph basically shows you that actually there's not a lot of appetite for risky assets biomedical schemes. Just for the industry as a whole, currently, and I acknowledge that the industry is currently dominated by the large reserves held by Discovery and GEMS, but just for the industry as a whole, currently 80% of investments or reserves are invested in cash or bonds. There's only 20% in the industry that's currently invested in equities. Uh, what's also important to note is, uh, is that um, the solvency of the medical schemes, which is basically shown by the diamond on the graph, that often dictates the level of uh, risk appetite uh, schemes have with uh, uh, more aggressive investment strategies. But even from this, you can see the scheme like some were made with a very high solvency of 60% at the end of 2013, it's 100% in cash. There's a scheme like POMED with um, uh, an 80% for, sorry, uh, some were made, um, yeah, uh, uh, there's POMED with a 50% solvency level, they've got 100% in cash. We can understand the likes of Discovery and GEMS not taking on that much risk. I mean, they've been struggling to meet the 25% solvency for a number of years. So um, just based on this, um, um, looking at reasons for medical schemes to consider more aggressive investment strategy, and this graph shows you equities, cash, and bond returns as determined by the, uh, by the indices that are typically used as benchmarks. So it's all, it's all share index, all bond index, and specific cash returns. And we can see from this graph that equity returns do outperform in the long term. This graph starts in 1990. I, I guess if you go to 1980, you'll see an even wider margin of equity returns outperforming. Having said that, uh, this graph also shows you what, would, what could happen uh, like happened in 2008, where at that point in time, bond, bond returns were exceeding equity returns. Okay, looking at the last 10 years uh, of, uh, of returns by asset class, again, we can see that equity and property returns have by far uh, outperformed equities and uh, bonds and cash returns. But typically what medical scheme trustees are often mindful of is the volatility experienced by these asset classes. So if you look at 2008 and 2011, those are two years where bonds and cash outperformed equity returns. And 2008 was a particularly bad year. If you look at that JST return, negative 22%. If one considers in, uh, inflation in that year of 11.8%, the negative return in that year was close to 30%. So I think this is one of the main reasons trustees are reluctant to adopt a more aggressive investment strategy. So medical scheme liabilities, again quoting from the Council for Medical Schemes annual report, um, the assets of a scheme should be spread in such a manner that they match its liabilities and minimum accumulated funds or reserves at any point in time. Trustees need to monitor investments closely, not only to ensure compliance with legal requirements, but also to diversify risk appropriately. Um, I think that's a very powerful statement that's being made by the Council for Medical Schemes. And the question is, are trustees 
really monitoring investments? Uh, by my experience, I don't think they are. Um, some of you may have different experiences with some of the schemes that you consult to, but uh, trustees often are so, trustees and ourselves are so often focused on the clinical and the claim side of, of uh, medical schemes that we often neglect the uh, assets. So what are medical scheme liabilities? You've got your short-term liabilities, basically your um, outstanding claims in your daily operations, and for that you would need um, short-term fixed liquid assets. Uh, as I spoke about earlier, the long-term investments are your reserves, and that's basically uh, to maintain your solvency and is informed by the pricing strategy. And uh, your long-term investment returns need to keep pace with medical scheme contribution inflation, otherwise, as I would show a little later, um, you would be eroding your reserves in real terms, and that would result in a direct uh, reduction of your solvency levels. So our view is that inve investment returns need to provide inflation protection. Okay, so where does the investment strategy fall? So currently your, your pricing strategy is informed by your demographics and your benefit structure, and your reserving strategy is informed by your projected solvency and your membership growth. Your investment strategy should then be informed by your pricing strategy and your reserve strategy. And basically, your strategy, in very simplistic terms, should be a, an explicit al asset allocation between the different asset classes, or schemes could set a target rate of return. So schemes could choose to target CPI plus one or CPI or some other number. Um, and I think that's very simplistic for medical schemes. Currently, there's various reasons for medical schemes adopting a conservative investment strategy. So um, the first point I have there is the regulatory restrictions. Now, as we all know, medical schemes submit their annual benefit pricing to the Council for Medical Schemes in September every year, and they need to demonstrate on an annual basis that they're financially sound. Uh, when they submit financials in April, they need to demonstrate again that they're financially sound. Um, the question is, is this annual review of medical schemes causing them to adopt in a conservative investment strategy? Would medical schemes adopt a more aggressive strategy if a more longer-term view was taken? Secondly, um, medical scheme trustees themselves are so fixated on the number of their sovereignty and how that moves, and they themselves take a short-term view and are thus reluctant to take on a more aggressive strategy. The third point there is on fees. Um, trustees often feel that asset consultant fees are exorbitant. You know, the typical asset consulting fee is a percentage of, of assets under management, sometimes as high as 1%. But, uh, and uh, from a medical scheme perspective, I do believe that that would be excessive, specifically in light of um, the Council for Medical Schemes' focus on non-healthcare expenditure. And... Um, Investment management fees can also be a, a hurdle. So um, the other reasons are the schemes that are not meeting the 25% solvency level. I think a risk-based approach would uh, encourage a more aggressive strategy because a risk-based solvency approach would take into account the risky nature of some of the assets if schemes were to adopt an aggressive strategy. Uh, lack of trustee expertise and employer influence, uh, specifically on restricted medical schemes, 
I do know that sometimes trustees um, think they have their investment expertise looking at their own portfolios and their own unit trusts and all of that. Um, but by and large, trustees do not have the specialist expertise to, to, to guide an investment strategy. The employer uh, is typically seen as the, the banker of a scheme, a restricted scheme, and sometimes employer trustees are reluctant to put the employer in a position where the employer would be re required to make good any shortfalls in, in a medical scheme. And, and so sometimes the employer is a, a hurdle in schemes adopting an aggressive strategy. So looking at, uh, so what we've done now is we've looked at the quantitative uh, approach to asset allocation. And basically the quantitative approach is to quantify both asset and liability risk faced by a scheme and to simultaneously um, uh, model both the asset returns and the claims liabilities. So um, a lot of what informs this model is your, your past experience, but we have had to take into account the actual, uh, uh, well, the current situation, specifically with respect to the, the investment returns. Because if you look at the 30-year average of CPI in South Africa, uh, CPI has averaged 9.6% per annum for the last 30 years in South Africa, but that's heavily weighted towards the late 80s where CPI was very high. So in doing this modeling, we've, we've had to adjust the CPI assumption to be more in line with what the Reserve Bank target is. So if you look at the last 10 years, CPI has averaged 5.3%. What this model can also do is um, it can determine an appropriate asset mix to ensure that certain adverse outcomes are not, are not achieved. So for example, the model can give you an investment strategy to ensure that your solvency doesn't fall below either 25% minimum level or any other targeted solvency level. Okay, so looking at case studies, we looked at three medical schemes. We looked at a large restricted medical scheme that currently has substantial uh, equity investment exposure. We looked at a large open scheme that has all the investments invested in cash. And we looked at a small restricted scheme where all investments uh, are in cash as well. Um, we also then considered three different levels of uh, investments, so a conservative allocation where 100% was invested in cash, a moderate allocation with 20% in equity, 30% in bonds, and 50% in cash, and the aggressive allocation basically showing the maximum in equity, 30% in bonds, and 30% in cash. Now what we did was we looked at this retrospectively, and for the retrospective modeling we used the actual liabilities and the model investment return, and for the prospective stochastic modeling we looked at the uh, modeling of both the assets and the liabilities. So this shows you the restricted medical scheme with substantial equity exposure. What the red line shows you is the actual solvency over the last 10 years since 2004. Uh, and what can be seen from this is that this scheme actually outperformed the, the benchmarks because the benchmarks are based on the all-share and, all and the STEFI. This scheme had 30% in equities and the red line shows you that um, they actually outperformed in the earlier years with the equity returns sort of falling in later years. But actually, that's not the equity returns. If, if you look at this area here, what, what this tells me is that this scheme actually used some of that investment returns to maintain their solvency level at, at a stable level. They actually used some of the excess investment returns. Um, this two lines here on the top shows you the 
model and the actual um, aggressive strategy. The middle one is the moderate strategy, and the one right at the bottom is the 100% cash strategy. Um, looking at the next scheme, I am aware of an error on this graph, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but uh, this green line should be fairly close to this red line. Um, I had a sleepless night last night because I couldn't figure out what was wrong. I knew it was wrong by looking at it immediately, but uh, I figured it out during the course of today, and I'm not going to give you what the error is. But uh, these lines are about... Uh, this is 100% cash investment, and what tells me it's wrong is that uh, this scheme with 100% cash investment outperformed even the equity allocation where we're modeling um, investment returns that are substantially higher than CPI. So um, the shape of this graph, this red line should be fairly close to the bottom line over there. And then looking at the last scheme, this is another scheme that has 100% investment in cash. It's a small restricted scheme. And uh, again, what this shows you is that um, with an, a more aggressive investment strategy and even a moderate aggressive strategy, this scheme could have done better. This scheme has a solvency of 60%, um, and uh, it's, it's maintained the 60% solvency. Um, well, the solvency has actually declined from, from 80% down to just over 60% because of the cash, 100% um, cash investment. So the reserves are being eroded. Okay, so, I mean, we've looked at the past, and we all know that hindsight is the perfect science. So, um, what we could have, should have, but didn't, uh, that's basically uh, what we know today, we didn't know 10 years ago, and we didn't act on that. So, what can we do for the future? So, just some assumptions on, how, on what we've modeled for the future. We've, again, modeled asset returns on the all-share index, the all-bond index, and the cash uh, cash returns. We've also modeled CPI stochastically based on a base CPI of 5.36%. And that 5.36% is basically the average of CPI over the last 10 years from 2004 to 2013. We've explicitly allowed for claims inflation in the model of CPI plus 3%. So that includes your tariff increases and your utilization allowance and all of your other allowances there. Contribution increases, we've modeled schemes to achieve an operational break-even position. So uh, we're not concerned in this model about what the actual contribution increases are from one year to the next, but for purposes of this modeling, we want to remove the element of uh, contribution um, uh, of, uh, of schemes utilizing the contributions to subsidize some of, uh, well, the investment income to subsidize some of the contributions to adverse claims expense. Um, we've assumed a stable risk profile, so there's no movement in your, in your claims risk, and we've assumed no change in membership. Now, the main reason we've done this is to remove all of the other elements that could affect your solvency. So, for example, if the scheme does lose a lot of members, artificially the solvency is boosted. And this is to see what impact this ALM would have um, if we just focus on purely on the investments. So this, again, is Scheme 1. Scheme 1 is basically the one that had equity exposure. If they were now to, to continue with their aggressive strategy, all things being equal, their solvency will increase from 50% to close to 70% over a 10-year period, over the next 10 years. You know, they could achieve a fairly stable solvency or marginal increase in solvency with a moderate asset allocation. And uh, with a conservative asset allocation, their solvency actually erodes over time. 
very similar to, to the first graph and very similar picture for scheme two and scheme three as well. And uh, basically what these graphs are telling us is that all things being equal, even if we, if, if we manage our claims, we manage our membership graphs, we manage our, um, if we manage all the items that affect your solvency artificially, then with a conservative asset strategy, you, you are going to erode your scheme reserves. So um, when is an assessment of the strategic asset allocation required? I mean, I think the appropriateness of, this, of the strategic asset allocation should be continuously reviewed, specifically if, this, if uh, the en environment does move to one, towards one of a risk-based solvency measure. Factors affecting the characteristic of liability, we've just listed them um, down there. It's the change in your base, your risk profile, membership growth or losses, changes in benefit structures, uh, surplus from contributions, solvency ratios, and uh, um, change in regulation legislation. So in conclusion, um, it's a question. So as healthcare actually, should we be providing more investment advice to our scheme? Because I do believe that this is one area where medical scheme trustees are reluctant to, to seek advice. And I think the main stumbling block for medical scheme trustees is the high fees charged by asset consultants. Um, medical schemes cannot stomach fees being a percentage of the assets under management. Um, and asset consultants are generally more focused on pension fund investments. So I do think there is a role for us to play in investment uh, advice to medical schemes because we understand the liabilities better than the asset consultants do. Um, and the next point that I have there is that should the focus shift from annual solvency monitoring to a more longer-term approach? Because I think because we monitor solvency every year, if a scheme solvency reduces drastically from one year to the next, Paresh sends them a letter and, and schemes then have to start worrying about how they're going to uh, turn around their solvency. You know, um, it's a question. Uh, should, should the focus shift to a more longer-term approach? Because if the focus does shift to a more longer-term approach, then I think schemes would be more, uh, well, there would be more appetite from schemes to adopt a more aggressive investment strategy. Um, quantitative asset liability modeling can assess all risks to mitigate or eliminate adverse outcomes. Um, and you can also uh, determine an uh, appropriate asset mix. So just some acknowledgments there. And, um, I think I can take some questions. Thank you. It's, it's Marius Stratum. I'm, I'm with MLEX Consulting, but I, I was a stockbroking analyst for 15 years, so that's my perspective here. And I would suggest, yes, please, um, you know, think about this very, very seriously. Um, maybe what you should be looking at is what life insurers do and what uh, short-term insurers do. They have a lot of liabilities on their balance sheets, but when, when it comes to the capital, you will find uh, at least a balanced portfolio or at least some level uh, of, of aggression in the, in, in the liability or the, 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 the assets that they hold. Um, and in my opinion, the required solvency for these companies is, is less aggressive than um, medical schemes are having to hold. 
So I think not just are uh, the members missing out on an opportunity for lower uh, increases over time, I think the country is missing out. I mean, this country has a very low savings rate, um, and there's a lot of money sitting idly here that could be invested um, in the South African, growing the South African economy. So please have a look at this. Thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you. I think um, I agree with your point. I think medical scheme trustees are very reluctant to adopt a more aggressive strategy. And I think uh, maybe us as actuaries or healthcare actuaries haven't focused on this uh, for any period of time. I think our focus has typically been on the liability side. I mean, you can see the agenda of today. We've got one investment topic, you know, and I do believe medical scheme investments do play an important part in the, in the biggest scheme of things. Uh, thanks, Roshana. Look, I think, just following on from the same point, I think I agree with you that a longer-term approach is definitely needed. But something we should be aware of is that most medical scheme trustees, especially in the open schemes, usually get elected for about, a, say, a five-year period on average. So they're very concerned that within that five-year period, nothing must go wrong. I think that's where the short-term approach comes from. They want to make sure that over that five years, there's nothing they don't rock the boat. The long-term 10, 15 years doesn't mean much to them. And that's, I think, where we have the, the conflict, you know. Uh, if you look at the well, medical aid or assets are invested, it's not too different from retirement funds and that sort of thing. So it, it should be a long-term, logically. You know, but that's the, the problem you're going to have, where if you suggest the sort of thing, you'll probably get kicked back on that side of it. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the third brutal point of mine, should, should the focus shift from an annual solvency monitoring to a more longer-term one? I think because... Council of Medical Schemes monitors this on an annual basis. Um, there is a big reluctance on trustees to, to explore this further. Yeah, thanks. I think we should wrap up. It's been a good day. Uh, Barry, do you want to say farewell? Alex, I'm quite happy for you to say farewell. I just want to say thank you very much to Alex for organizing the day. If everyone could give Alex a hand as well, it's quite an undertaking. <laughs>